You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Welcome, everybody. You're listening to Metamorphosis, a podcast where we interview physicians from across BC and Canada with the aim of helping medical students navigate their medical careers. My name is Igor. And my name is Ali. On today's episode, we are speaking with Dr. Kate Chipperfield, head of the Division of Hematopathology at BC Children's Hospital. On top of all that, if you can believe it, she has a few more roles, but we'll leave it to her to introduce you to all of those. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chipperfield. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much. As Ali mentioned, uh, you have a number of different hats that you wear at work. So could you tell our listeners about some of the work that you do on a daily basis? Sure. So I'm a hematopathologist, which um, means that I, I work in a clinical laboratory attached to the hospital here in um, BC Children's. And we also, within our laboratory, support uh, Women's Hospital. Um, so as a hematopathologist, I um, look at... Uh, issues surrounding um, blood and, and bone marrow disorders. And so that's everything from malignant to benign disorders, um, disorders affecting um, bleeding and clotting um, and uh, hemoglobinopathies or red cell disorders, platelet disorders, you name it. If it's um, about the actual function of blood and bone marrow, then that's what we, we take care of. So in terms of other hats that I wear, though, um, you mentioned that I'm division head of hematopathology, so that's providing oversight to that um, division here within the laboratory um, and some leadership to our small group of um, four uh, full-time hematopathologists. And uh, uh, as well, I have a role in undergraduate medical ed education, a very small role in, uh, in that I teach or lead one of the weeks uh, for first year um, medicine in uh, the bleeding disorders and hematologic malignancy week. And um, most recently I've taken on an, another role uh, in postgraduate um, medical education and have become the program director of the hematopathology residency program through UBC. That's pretty much it. And by pretty much it, you mean so many different things that you have to do on a daily basis. <laughs> There's a little bit of juggling for sure. So when you first got into to medical school, if you can think back to that time, um, what sort of things were you interested in at that time? Did you know that you were going to end up in something hematological or um, in pathology? No. So uh, pathology really didn't enter my mind at all as a career choice um, when I entered medicine. Um, so I went to medical school straight out of my um, undergraduate years at University of Saskatchewan and I um, got into medicine at U of S as well and uh, we had a class of 60 um, and you know I, I enjoyed uh, my undergraduate uh, medical education very much. I was basically interested in any um, physiology uh, uh, of, of the human body and I think though I was drawn somewhat to hematology because um, I'm kind of a visual person and I really loved that you could very easily take a biopsy, so to speak, of blood and put it on a slide and look at it under a microscope and get a really good idea of what might be happening with a patient, uh, not only with respect to uh, primary disorders of the blood, but other things that are happening, you know, related to concurrent inflammation or, um, you know, other issues that were, were going on. So. Um, I found that really fascinating, and I within, um, you know, within some uh, few years, I, I was 
primarily interested in internal medicine, I think, um, uh, after I finished my undergraduate years. And what other specialties did you have on your radar at that time, along with internal medicine? Yeah, so I was thinking about internal medicine, um, but I also was thinking about anesthesia as it relates to, you know, being the internist in the OR um, and is kind of task-oriented and procedural, and that also really interested me. Uh, So I did do electives in both internal medicine and anesthesia to try and to make my decision. And so were there any specific experiences that helped you decide and, and rule out one or the other? Yeah. Well, I think in general, I had mainly positive experiences in internal medicine um, and, you know, enjoyed some of the complexity uh, around figuring out what was, what was going going on with a particular patient. It was kind of um, like solving a mystery uh, in terms of uh, reaching a diagnosis. And I think looking back, uh, that was quite telling that it was reaching the diagnosis that was the most interesting for me and not so much the... Um, carrying out the the treatment plan um, and follow-up, but we'll come back to that, I guess. Um, With respect to anesthesia, I had done some local electives uh, in Saskatoon and had been really enjoying myself, really loved the procedures, loved, you know, that manual, that element of manual dexterity that's required. Um, And then I went away to do an elective elsewhere and had not as great uh, an experience. And for for whatever reason that was... um, uh, you know, to be honest, it came down to the staff weren't as friendly uh, to work with. And it was, you know, therefore not that enjoyable to be spending a lot of um, sort of concentrated time sitting next to someone else. And I couldn't imagine a residency where I was going to be sitting with someone else in the room, sort of trapped, talking to them for, um, you know, an eight-hour case, unless it was in a comfortable situation. So um, there was also one staff member who I was working with who had herself had bad experiences in terms of having an injury that made, um, you know, the, her ability to intubate, I think less, um, she had less confidence in herself and it was quite clear that that was an uncomfortable situation. And, and sort of that made me think about those, those possibilities in my own career. And, and in the end, I just decided that internal medicine was a better place for me. So to you, fostering those connections um, with teammates and, and uh, people who you work with is very important. Um, would you say it's very important as well in, in during residency for, for students entering residency? Yeah, I think I think it's difficult when, when you're entering residency because there are so many things to think about um, in terms of how to make that decision. Um, and it's also really difficult because a lot of people making that decision are very young and haven't had a lot of life experiences. And that was certainly true of me, um, I was 23 actually um, when I finished medicine, uh, 24, and was making that decision, and uh, had never really worked beyond summer jobs outside of um, outside of medicine. So knowing yourself and knowing what kind of person you are and what kind of situations you want to be in can be kind of difficult at that at that time. Um, but as much as you can, you know, thinking about um, how important is it to be um, to really know a team, to really be surrounded by um, supportive team members and, you know, what you want to be doing day to day, whether you want to be um, seeing patients is, is one thing, but um, just knowing that, uh, you know, what you're getting to, into, I guess, can be quite difficult when you're at that age and you have so such limited experiences. So I would say going out and doing electives as much as possible um, not only in your in your center, but in other centers might be helpful because 
um, you know, there may be a, a culture within your center that is either very positive in an area or, or you know, somewhat negative. And you may find that, um, you know, experiencing that, that specialty in a different center can give you a better idea of, mm-hmm. of what it's going to be like. Right. And so, you know, we hear a lot of mixed advice from senior students and, and obviously a number of physicians that we interview about how important it is to decide early on what specialty you're interested in. So based on your experience, do you think that it's better to just have an open mind or to decide early and just set forward on that path? Hmm. Yeah, I, well, I'm kind of a funny person to talk to about that because I I made a decision early on that I was going to do internal medicine. And of course, that's not at all what I ended up doing. So mm-hmm. um, I personally think, you know, it's having an open mind and, and trying to um, to seek out, you know, an experience or an area of medicine that really you find rewarding and um, interesting, um, you know, because you are going to be doing this many hours a day for, for a good number of years. Um, and it has to be something that isn't just, uh, you know, a paycheck, but it's something that mm-hmm. you, you find rewarding. Um, so personally, I would say keep an open mind and don't try and pigeonhole yourself into a particular area too soon. Um, that's difficult because, you know, you also are told you should be doing research and electives in a particular area. But, um, you know, I, I think the best thing you, the, the best thing you can do for yourself is to not, not narrow yourself down too soon, but rather be open to different experiences and sort of, um, you know, reflect as much as you can do a lot of self-reflection in terms of how day-to-day experiences in a particular rotation or on a particular unit have made you feel. Did you find that it mm-hmm. was rewarding you came home feeling like really pumped um this is this was a great day i enjoyed working with those people i enjoyed seeing that kind of case mix or did you feel like oh this is kind of a negative situation i i didn't enjoy that aspect of it um you know my palms start sweating every time my pager goes off (laughs) um maybe that's not the area for you um so yeah for me i i decided internal medicine was going to be it. And, um, I was interested in hematology and I did explore some other areas within internal medicine, but kind of kept an open mind and then, um, decided to pursue clinical hematology. And ultimately, um, when I was doing my clinical hematology, um, subspecialty residency is when I realized that there was this whole other specialty related to hematology in, in hematopathology and that, um, I was actually enjoying my laboratory rotations um, more than I was enjoying my clinical rotations. Not that I didn't enjoy them as well, but it was, it was a different thing. And I began to think, you know, what, what would reward me as a person and what, you know, what would provide me with the the kind of life that I wanted. And that's why I ended up pursuing hematopathology. So were there any other subspecialties during your internal medicine residency that were kind of also on your short list? Yeah, I, um, I considered both nephrology and endocrinology also like very much um, and not that every area, you know, every area of internal medicine to some extent is kind of a thinking specialty, but um, very um, organized and sort of uh, a lot of interesting and intricate feedback mechanisms, I guess, uh, was what fascinated me. But when it came down to it, it was about numbers. It was about looking at numbers, you know, mm. um, creatinine and calcium and um, blood sugars. And what I really came back to in hematology was the fact that you could see 
blood under the microscope and that that visual aspect and and you know sort of the beauty of a normal bone marrow aspirate and what it looked like was and the organization of it was what really appealed to me and so that's that's how I ended up pursuing hematology that's great mm -hmm. now, do you have any other advice for people entering um, residency is there anything that you wish you had done to prepare uh, for your own um, residency clinical practice think so I uh, it's really hard to to look back and and think would you have done anything differently um, you know some people might say actually that my time in internal medicine was quote wasted because I didn't actually end up doing uh, internal medicine and hematology I I did actually all those exams I you know got my FRCPC in, in internal medicine and hematology before I um, you know did my training and exams in hemepath but ultimately I think um, any general basis in clinical medicine will serve you well no matter where you go so you know even if you ended up doing something that's very much um, away from that in radiology or um, epidemiology or what have you um, I think that will always serve you well because you have a good grounding in um, in the basics so then now I guess transitioning to the actual work that you do on a day-to-day -day basis um, could you walk us through what you know an average day looks like and um all the different aspects of your day based on the different hats you wear? Sure. So um, my day is sort of decided a little bit based on whether I'm on service or off service. So we have, um, as I mentioned, um, basically uh, four and a half, close to five full-time um, hematopathologists here. So I, I work in a really supportive group setting in a, in a hospital lab where uh, we're fairly close together and, you know, we work with the same group of technologists um, uh, on, on the regular basis. So um, I, I get a lot of people interaction in my job. Um, so service is when we're assigned to take care of some of the clinical responsibilities coming through the lab. So we divide it into two streams. Um, the first one being primarily morphology based. So if there are blood films um, that a physician have requested a review on, then I will be spending my time reviewing that morphology and the case histories with my resident at the multi-head uh, teaching microscope, sometimes with a medical student with us as well. So not only, you know, interpreting those studies, but also teaching at the same time. Um, and any bone aspirates and biopsies that have been requested, um, we'll be looking at those as well. So uh, I may actually go out and perform marrow aspirates and biopsies on, on children with um, the help of anesthesia doing sedation. So that's a great aspect of my job where I get to do still do a procedure, mm -hmm. um, still go out and see um, patients and also interact with the, the ward team, the nurses um, in the clinic, and, and sometimes the anesthesiologists and the, the nurses in the OR if the, the child has to go to the OR for that procedure. Um, so that, that's sort of when you're on primor, primary morphology service. It's, it's a, you know, a busy day and sometimes a fair number of phone calls and interruptions asking for urgent reviews, but... And then a fair amount of time divided between the microscope, the telephone, your computer, entering your comments and, and preparing your reports. Um, and then the second line of service is pretty much everything else besides morphology. So it's kind of a grab bag of different issues that come up and different types of um, uh, interpretations that you're doing. So any coagulation abnormalities, um, any hemoglobinopathy investigations for thalassemias or hemoglobin variants. We'll be interpreting and signing those out. Also, you know, um, teaching uh, with the resident uh, how to interpret those. 
and transfusion medicine cases um, and flow cytometry. Um, so a lot of different things. And so it's, it's a, sometimes a less busy service, but often a more like um, in some ways a bit more of an exciting thing because you, you constantly have to change um, what you're thinking about and, you know, be changing from thinking about thrombotic disorders, bleeding disorders to something completely different. Um, you know, changing hats and thinking about a transfusion medicine case and talking, you know, to an anesthesiologist who has a woman with a, a heavy postpartum hemorrhage happening. So, um, yeah, that's that's a big part of what we do. Um, and then when you're off service, meaning you aren't, you don't have those clinical responsibilities, those are the weeks where you have to do your continuing medical education. You take some vacation out of that those weeks. Um, that's, I, I, you know, really what you would consider, I guess, protected time. But because I um, have a few different hats, I'm doing those administrative responsibilities during that time. Um, so, you know, I'll be reviewing um, key quality indicators with my technologist team, looking at turnaround times, um, reviewing other quality uh, indicators, um, meeting with them and trying to move forward any quality improvement initiatives that we're working on. Um, that's also the time when I'm developing and working on teaching materials um, for both undergraduate and postgraduate education. And for example, I'm scheduled to give a talk for the NICU fellows next week. And so after I get off this call, I'm going to be working on that PowerPoint presentation and, um, you know, preparing that. Um, and then again, recently having taken over uh, for the program directorship, I'm basically responding to emails and uh, trying to... Um, you know, keep a, a handle on that situation as well. Um, yeah, so, and, and then of course there's the other academic activities in terms of research, so at the, the same time trying to keep up with my collaborations with other, um, my colleagues, and you know, currently I'm, a, I'm participating in uh, a, cu a couple of flex student projects uh, as well during this period, so yeah, it keeps you busy. A lot to juggle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you find that you have enough time to pursue activities outside of work and passions and things of that that sort? Well, I think that's one of the beautiful things about pathology um, and lab medicine in that it is a lot more um, contained in a way. Um, I, we do on-call, and, and actually our on-call is, is fairly busy, mainly because we have the issues of transfusion medicine that we handle, and, and those transfusion cases can, can happen any time, day or night. But... Um, you know, compared to being in-house uh, and, and, you know, say an obstetrician, <laughs> it, it's very different. Um, but most of the things we can handle from home. So, um, and when I'm not on call, you know, basically my, my workday usually is um, like 8.30 to 5, sometimes 8 to 6, but almost never does it go beyond that, in part because, um, you know, most of the time... Uh, an urgent diagnosis, a diagnosis can wait. And if it's urgent, then you stay and you, and you communicate with the clinical team and you take care of it. But, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the time things can be taken care of, uh, and shut down before six. And I always just think to myself, am I, is anyone going to be harmed if I go home at this point? And usually the answer is, is no, or obviously I don't go home. And the other one is I'm tired. I'm maybe not thinking as well as I should should I be signing this out at this point or should I mm -hmm. wait and look at it again tomorrow morning and just make sure that my thinking is clear? And, you know, 90% of the time that is actually the better option is to wait and come back and look again and make sure you haven't missed anything. That makes sense. 
And is there something that um, in particular that made you want to switch to uh, pediatric population um, at BC Children's? Um, no, that I mean, I, I kind of just fell into that. And I think I've had a lot of luck in my in my career. But um, when I first came out of uh, my residency, as I said, I did internal medicine and then clinical heme. And I did um, a total of uh, it was two years of hematopathology before my exam. It actually turned out to be only 18 months because I had a baby in there. Um, and I went, took a staff job in Vancouver because that's where the opportunity was, where I could, could do the mix of, at that point, trying to do clinical heme at the same time as, um, as uh, hematopathology. And uh, the, the job that I took ultimately um, was full-time at, at Vancouver General Hospital, and um, I ended up very quickly within, um, within about six months to a year of joining that team, not just being the medical director of the transfusion service there and doing hematopathology, but um, trying to, and having the directorship of um, transfusion medicine for all of Vancouver Coastal Health. And uh, that was a big job for someone who was just out of residency, and it was a he very heavy administrative role, and it was exciting, and I learned so much because I really had to be quite immersed in transfusion medicine um, through that time, and I developed some strong teaching interests by having that role um, and teaching transfusion medicine. Um, so a lot of rewarding aspects of that job, but it also, you know, to some extent was um, very demanding from an administrative uh, perspective and trying to push change in places where, you know, they maybe didn't want to see change directed from um, a central uh, larger site like VGH. Um, so after a time, I just found that, it, it you know, it, it could be quite tiring and I got a little bit burnt out, even though I, I still very much loved the people I was working with and um, the kind of work I was doing. Um, and an opportunity came up to work uh, at, Vancouver, uh, at BC Children's where, you know, it's a single center. And um, you know, you're working with um, somewhat of a smaller group, and um, I I took that opportunity uh, in part just because I needed a new challenge in my life, and, and it was time for a change after ten years at in a, at uh, one place. So I was lucky to have that opportunity to make a change, and and it's turned out to be really great for me. That's wonderful. And did you find any barriers uh, working in that role as you know as a young um, new doctor? Uh, did you find that you had any um, issues to sort of overcome during that time? Um, yeah, for sure. I think you guys may find, and um, many people listening to your podcast may find that um, as a young person coming out in, in residency, um, one of the, the major issues is uh, looking young and being perceived as too young to be in that role. And, you know, I, I was a pretty young looking person. Um, and I was young, for that matter, when I was just starting my, my residency. I was only in my mid-20s. Um, so I had a lot of issues with that. And, you know, being a woman sometimes uh, didn't help the matter either. So being an especially young-looking woman was difficult. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the only thing I think that you can do in that situation is um, try to support others who are in the same situation and, you know, holding yourself to a very high level of professionalism um, and being very good at your job and, you know, patients respected that and your colleagues respect that and, um, uh, sometimes speaking out and, and standing up for yourself is necessary too, but for the most part, just, you know, holding yourself to a very high level is, is what I found to be the best thing I could do. Um, then entering 
that kind of position at Vancouver General Hospital and and having such a huge administrative role, um, you know, come to me very quickly after also was difficult again because you're trying to achieve changes and make recommendations um, when you are what is perceived to be a young person without without a lot of um, experience. Um, again, you know, being a good listener, I think, and, and at least hearing out people who maybe are expressing a different opinion um, and, and trying to have a really healthy professional dialogue. Um, it's, it's a lot like negotiation where you have to realize you want to get something out of it and they want to get something out of it. And if you can just um, try to flex a little bit so that uh, both of you get a little bit of what you want, um, things usually move in the right direction. Um, yeah, so that's something to be aware of and that you're, you're probably going to face um, as you enter your residency as well. So are there any challenges now that, you know, you're not necessarily interacting with the patients as much? Do you find that there are any limitations to, um, to kind of your role as a result of that, the fact that you're not interacting with the patients? Um, you know, that I did, I did for a long time miss patient interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, there was a lot of things that I didn't enjoy as much about patient interactions. Um, generally, patients are lovely, um, and sometimes they're families that aren't so great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't miss that aspect of um, <laughs> clinical medicine. Um, I, I still feel very connected to our patients, which may sound strange because generally they are... Um, they're a slide or a, a result and a name attached to a result. But we have a lot of interaction, particularly with our hematology oncology colleagues, and they're constantly coming down to the lab or calling us and discussing patient cases, asking for results and reviewing the morphology of the results with us. Um, so that I do, I do get exposed to the patient's story and their, their family history and how they're doing with their treatment a lot. So. I consider myself as having the sort of the best of both worlds where I, I, I hear about the clinical, I, I feel like I know the patient even though they don't know me, mm-hmm. um, uh, but I also get to go home at a decent time and have a good um, life outside of medicine that sometimes I think um, our clinical colleagues really um, you know, have to suffer that consequence when they're... Um, have to be much more available to to patient care at all hours that um, you know that suffers uh, whereas I I don't have that issue um, mm-hmm. one thing I think about um, you know pathology that's really exciting is is the other aspects that you don't think about um, um, you know we we have a lot of interaction with technologists which is a whole nother um, group of health professionals that are extremely dedicated to their job, extremely dedicated to the patients, but are completely unsung heroes behind the scenes. Um, so even though I don't get to work with nurses and respiratory therapists and um, physiotherapists out in the hospital, I, I'm working with a really dedicated group of very knowledgeable individuals. Um, and I, I formed great relationships with those people within the lab so that it's not just you know the lonely pathologist sitting um, in their office uh, not talking to anyone. We're constantly interacting as a group and um, collaborating to bring the best care that we can to our patients. Um, and then the other aspect of pathology, especially clinical pathology like HemePath or MedMicro or um, 
clinical biochemistry is that there's a lot of technology um, associated with our work. So, um, you know, we're, we're interacting with our technologists who and helping them oversee the automated analyzers for um, CBC, for flow cytometry, for, you know, coagulation testing. And there's a lot of quality assurance and troubleshooting that goes into that that can be quite interesting and exciting and, and there's constant changes um, interacting with different software, um, you know, um, digital microscopy. So there's, there's a lot of aspects um, that might ap ap appeal to somebody who is more sort of um, tech savvy and, and interested in that type of thing. And you mentioned earlier that um, one of the challenges was dealing sometimes with family or parents. Um, is, is that one of the things that you find is one of the major differences between adult and pediatric uh, hematopathology? And are there other differences that you found working with those two groups? Yeah, so I, I mean, really, it's the, um, it's the clinicians who, who take, um, take care of that situation. So um, in internal medicine, um, you're dealing with um, an elderly person and it's the absentee child who has been out of the city <laughs> for 20 years and comes back and now wants to be involved in the care decisions for their parent and, and that kind of dynamic that was more difficult. And in pediatrics, it's, you know, um, a family who's struggling with a, a serious illness in their in one of their children, which is obviously a, a devastating situation. But it's the clinicians who um, are having to deal with that. And, and as a pathologist, that's something that I'm, I'm quite protected from. So um, that's, I guess I have to say that's the part that I don't miss. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Moving from, uh, from adult you know, medicine to pediatrics, I, you know, I can just comment, even though I'm not a clinician, um, having spent time in both centers, um, pediatrics is, it, you know, in babyhood, uh, a lot more like people will say veterinary medicine, because you have to be able to read signs. Um, and, you know, and your patient can't really tell you in a history exactly mm -hmm. what's going on. Um, so as the, as the child gets older, obviously that changes, but there's, there's a lot of dynamics of you know, social dynamics with, that overlay in pediatrics more so, even more so than in adult medicine, even though, of course, in adulthood, socioeconomic status really plays a huge part in health, but in peds, um, even more so in, you know, the family situation, the, um, you know, their, their situation at school, their interaction with their peers, um, there's all sorts of things that, that play into the health and development of a child. So, um, you know, fascinating in its own way, but also you know, that has to be something you're interested in to really take on. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, a lot of our listeners are going to be from UBC, and we know you as the all-star lead for week 24. Um, how did you find yourself as a lead for that week in, in Med 412? Yeah, I I think I, again, lucked out with that. Um, so I, you know, I had been invited to do a lecture in that week um, many years ago, and so had consistently given the the introduction to transfusion medicine lecture um, in that week, and and was also you know helping out in terms of the the workshops where you have we have all those tutors who like to circulate both the anemia workshop in week 23 and then the coag and uh, heme malignancy workshops in in week 24, and um, you know that that those weeks had been developed, I think, originally by um, Dr. Jason Ford, who actually 
previously was in this job in um, at BC Children's as a hematopathologist. Okay. Um, and he actually left to to practice outside of Canada, and um, it was taken over by another of my colleagues, um, Michelle Wong. And so you know, it went through several iterations of of good teachers constantly trying to improve that uh, that week. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, when uh, Michelle decided that she was going to move on to a different um, and add a different administrative role to her job, she needed to let something go and, and approached me about taking that over. And I was really excited to do that, in part because I was inheriting um, a really well um, planned out and thought out curriculum. And uh, so mm-hmm. there was, you know, um, definitely a huge amount of hard work that went before me. But I think what um, everyone had brought to that those weeks was um, first the collaboration between weeks 23 and 24 where um, you know now Leslie Zipchin my colleague at um, BGH a clinical hematologist um, runs week 23 we collaborate you know um, together and try to make sure that we're we're speaking the same language to the to the students so that you know we're using the same terminology the same approach sometimes reusing the same figures that you will have seen between week 23 and week 24 um, and making sure that all the the, the lecturers across both weeks um, are um, teaching the same message in terms of a, a particular approach, either to anemia or bleeding or to um, abnormal CBC and query heme malignancy. So um, it's just a lot of organization, and and I really mm-hmm. enjoyed the fact that I inherited a very um, you know well thought out curriculum from other teachers before me, and have just had the pleasure of trying to make minor tweaks and improve on it further well yeah we as students definitely appreciated that nice flow between weeks 23 and 24 and how you guys collaborated Mm -hmm. that was yeah much appreciated (laughs) the easiest to study for the midterm definitely that's great yeah we i you know really enjoy um you know distilling things down into a simple approach because that's what worked for me as a medical student and has continued to work for me throughout you know my career um and that'll Mm -hmm. get you um you know, most of the way through through everything, and it's it's layering on those small nuances and the detailed molecular knowledge um, much later. It's the the basic approach that's that's going to get you there in the end. So now you've taught, you know, I guess medical students and physicians at every level of training. Um, what have you found to be some of the differences when you are teaching, you know, undergrads versus postgrads? Yeah, I, well, what I I love about undergraduates is that you are still willing to ask questions and um, and willing to ask questions, um, you know, at the, the distributed sites, um, you know, in front of uh, a few hundred of your colleagues mm-hmm. um, and still willing to say, I don't know. And the further you get on in your training and, and in, into your staff um, life, the more... Um, I, I hate to say it, but a little bit of shame creeps in in terms of not having that knowledge and, and people are constantly, I think, trying to, you know, show themselves in the best light and that's understandable when you're you're thinking that you may um, end up applying for a job with this person that you're, you're working with as a resident. Um, but um, if you don't know something, asking or clarifying, um, I think is the best thing that you can do as a resident. And what I see is the difference between undergraduate learners and postgraduate is that there is an increasing reluctance to do that the longer you go in your, in your training. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's usually the, the most scary thing if we're concerned about anyone um, in a postgraduate situation or even in a staff colleague situation, as if someone 
is unwilling to say I don't know or unwilling to ask for help, then that's a, a big red flag and something we're worried about. Right. Now, is pathology and laboratory medicine, would you say that that's something that is um, shadowing friendly? If we have peers that, you know, after um, the COVID situation is managed, would that be something that students are able to come in and, and experience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a great it's a great area for, for shadowing and for experiencing. I think um, we're, we're always happy to, to entertain <laughs> um, folks for a half day or, or a full day. Yeah. Okay, that's awesome to hear. Fantastic. Um, do you have a favorite part about uh, teaching medical students or having medical students shadow you? Um, no, I mean, I, it's, it's interesting sometimes to, to see your own, your own job through someone else's eyes. And often mm. for medical students, they, it's, it's very eye-opening because not a lot of time or attention is focused on the laboratory when you um, are in medicine or even in, in everyday life. Um, you know, there's been a, a million movies and television shows made about an, an emergency room, but no one makes, <laughs> makes a show about mm-hmm. the laboratory. Um, uh, and it would be fascinating, let me tell you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it's, it's a, usually a big surprise. People are, you know, uh, surprised to see how many people work here, um, how many different areas and different technologies we're working with, um, the way things are set up, um, how things work behind the scenes, how much work and effort goes into, you know, something as simple as a, a CBC report. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's what I enjoy the most is even if someone's not going to be interested and ultimately pursue a career in the laboratory, I think it's nice for them to see what's happening down here. Um, you know, all the people who work to, to put out quality reports and um, quality um, uh, blood products, if that's the case, thinking about transfusion medicine, um, and uh, even if they, they don't pursue a career in, in lab medicine, that they have a better idea of what goes on down here and that um, we're here to, to consult with, you know, that um, we're just a phone call away in terms of um, asking a question about a particular result um, on your patient or discussing a particular case. So that's what we're here for. Well, now anytime someone says send it to the lab, I'm definitely going to have more appreciation for all that happens in that actual lab. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing about, um, for the listeners to think about is, you know, we've talked strictly about hematopathology here as a, as an area within what we call clinical pathology. Um, but there are other areas that you can consider for, for a career within laboratory medicine, um, uh, you know, anatomical pathology, which is pretty much, um, surgical pathology, you know, looking at, um, solid tissue biopsies from any area, um, of the body, any organ, um, also including forensic pathology and autopsy um, or other areas of clinical pathology, including, you know, like I've mentioned, clinical biochemistry or medical microbiology um, or even, um, uh, you know, some genetic um, molecular genetics or geno- genome diagnostics. These are areas that you could also consider if, if there are other things besides blood that interest you more, although I can't imagine what would. Right. And one thing we haven't touched on with you yet is some of the research that you're involved in. And I know that um, a lot of our peers are interested in, in research. So are there any um, interesting things that you're working on or that are you know, currently happening uh, in the Vancouver area in your field of research um, that might be exciting to some of the listeners? Yeah, um, 
So I must say that I, I feel like my academic career has been more concentrated in, in teaching and research has not been something that I've been, um, you know, in terms of basic science research that I've been uh, involved in. But there mm -hmm. is certainly that, that possibility. And I think pathology is one place where, it, you know, there's a unique um, connection to basic science um, and, and um, a, a basic laboratory that, that could allow you to combine that with your, with your career. Um, so for me, I've done mainly sort of clinical um, uh, collaborations with, with colleagues, so um, clinically applied research, um, you know, basically looking at um, sometimes knowledge translation and teaching of um, appropriate transfusion uh, strategies to physicians, um, I've done some work in terms of looking at appropriate indications for red cell transfusion. Um, right now, the work I'm doing is with uh, one of my the clinical biochemistry colleagues, and we are looking at trying to establish um, the best way for recruiting normal people to provide blood samples for um, reference intervals uh, to mm -hmm. the laboratory. Because, you know, in order to provide... Um, a reliable reference interval or biological uh, reference range, we we should be recruiting people who are similar to our patients, but otherwise healthy. So, you know, we want um, people from, you know, all uh, nationalities and, and cultures. We want um, women and men. For us here at BC Children's, it's uniquely difficult because what we want are pediatrics. And of course, there's a real mm -hmm. difficulty about getting blood samples from normal children who otherwise would not be getting a blood test done. So we're looking at that in terms of um, peripartum reference intervals for women who are in the third trimester and um, around the time of labor. And then also more recently trying to recruit healthy neonates with their mom to um, get an additional sample for some reference interval testing at the time when the baby is getting poked anyway for their mm -hmm. newborn screening test. Um, and so that's the study that we're, we're working on uh, most at this time. And unfortunately, we've had to pause with, um, with COVID, um, that enrollment. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of opportunity um, to get involved with research. I would say that any interested student could go uh, to the website for the Center for Blood Research, which is based out of the Life Sciences Center um, at UBC. Um, and there's like a, just a ton of uh, investigators through that center who would be looking for uh, potentially some um, uh, students to collaborate with them. Um, also the BC Children's Health Research Institute here on this campus and Vancouver Coastal Health Research Institute, all of those places would be good, good to check. I think that's really cool because from what you describe, it seems like there is an opportunity for an intersection between advocacy for having, you know, a representative reference range for um, all different types of people that live in our region and the actual clinical application of it. Very cool. Yeah. So again, I mean, one of the things I've liked about working with, um, we've worked with several different medical students and residents is um, for the medical students, exposing them a little bit to um, the clinical laboratory at the same time where, you know, they're also being exposed to the ethics of consent and mm -hmm. approaching patients for for consent, and um, it's been, I think, a really unique learning experience for them, but I have enjoyed, um, you know, exposing them a bit to the clinical lab, which, you know, some people may not have th thought about doing a, an elective in. Well, that's fantastic, and, you know, I'm really hoping that this uh, COVID situation clears up soon so you can continue doing that fantastic research and all the work that you do. 
are there any is there any uh, final thoughts you have for um, our listeners or for us? No, I um, you know I think this is a, a really interesting time to be entering into medicine, and there's you know it's it's a uniquely difficult time, but it's also really exciting, and I I think um, basically over the past you know several months of um, the COVID nineteen experience, seeing the um, the ability of the healthcare system to, to pull together and respond, um, and the ability of um, researchers to, you know, take what can be a very long process of, of considering and planning a research question and, and developing um, a study and how quickly they can condense it down and get something turned around and, you know, and, and begin researching on something that we didn't even know about until, uh, you know, uh, before several months ago. Um, has been really exciting and is um, kind of inspiring that that things can be um, can be really positive coming out of a terrible situation. That's wonderful. And that brings us to the end of our episode. And if there's one thing that we've learned from speaking with you, it's that you probably have many exciting things to get back to after we finish recording this episode. So we will let you do exactly that. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Chipperfield. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. For more episodes of Metamorphosis, look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was written, recorded, and edited with 100% adherence to social distancing guidelines. As usual, on behalf of the entire Metamorphosis team, we hope you are staying happy, healthy, and safe. See you next time, and remember to wash your hands. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 